This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello, and welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society from politics to pop culture and beyond. And as always, you can always tell it's a good guest when they chuckle at the introduction. And today, Good Faith Fam, we're going to talk with the author of probably my favorite book of the entire year. He's the Global View columnist at the Wall Street Journal. Professor of Foreign Affairs at Bard College, Distinguished Fellow in Strategy and Statesmanship at the Hudson Institute, historian, author of numerous fantastic books on history and foreign policy, uh, all of which I love, and most recently, the fantastic Ark of a Covenant, The United States, Israel, and the Fate of the Jewish People. He's the man, the myth, the legend, Walter Russell Mead, and we're going to talk American history, purpose, faith, and foreign policy, uh, along with many other awesome things. But first, uh, let's set this bad boy up. Okay. So we're back looking at the book of Genesis again. It's one of the great masterpieces in the history of literature, theology, and the accolades could go on and on, of course. But one way to really get a visceral sense of how remarkable Genesis is, is to consider it as an American. The book has played such a foundational role in the American imagination. It shows up in our political history. Uh, Our self-understanding as a covenantal nation originates with God's promises to Abraham. It shows up in our moral trajectory. You could think of Frederick Douglass describing his triumphant return as a free man to his hometown in Maryland using the story of Noah. The waters of the flood were retiring, he wrote. It's a beautiful quote, a sign that the billows of slavery are rolling back to leave the land blooming again. It shows up uh, at the pinnacle of American art. Its first chapters of Genesis serve as the framework for Steinbeck's East of Eden, as well as the best track on Springsteen's Darkness on the Edge of Town, Adam Raised the Cane. Uh, it's a whole different conversation. And The Binding of Isaac provides the first verse for Dylan's Highway 61 Revisited. The book of Genesis even showed up to mark the high points of American technological achievement. So the crew of Apollo 8, the first human spaceflight to reach the moon, marked their achievement by reciting the verses of the Genesis account of creation. Genesis has long occupied an outsized place in the American consciousness, which is almost a little odd when you consider it, because after all, we're a nation of laws, of political theory, a people whose greatest governmental achievement is a national constitution. So shouldn't our chief national text be something like Justinian's Code or the Twelve Tables, right, the foundation of Roman law, or at least the biblical book of Deuteronomy, right, like where the American founders adored. They quoted it more than any other source, biblical or otherwise, and which sounds much more like a practical societal guide than Genesis does. And the answer, I think, lies in recognizing that Genesis is no less a work of great ideas than Deuteronomy or Plato's Republic or Cicero on Obligation, but it's built differently than all of those texts. In the wonderful phrasing of of my teacher, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs of Blessed Memory, what Genesis is, in fact, is philosophy written in a deliberately non-philosophical way. It deals with all the central questions of philosophy, what exists, ontology, what can we know, epistemology, are we free, philosophical psychology, and how should we behave, ethics, but it does so in a way quite unlike the philosophical classics from Plato to Wittgenstein. To put it at its simplest, philosophy is truth as system, Genesis is truth as story. It's a unique work, philosophy in the narrative mode. America's 
great strength and sometimes it's great weakness as well, but on the whole, it's a virtue, is that we're a people that understand the power of storytelling. It's no mistake that mass media storytelling on its grandest historical scale was invented and developed here because we are, after all, a people with no common bonds, whether of blood or soil tying us together other than our belonging to the same story. But far from making our connections to each other thinner or weaker, they actually furnish us with a sense of vision and aspiration to advance the human condition, both on behalf of our own society here at home and so many others throughout the globe. And the best stories help us remember that we have a mission, that we have to try our best to fulfill. And ultimately, if America is to be, when all is said and done, uh, a net force for good in human history and in world history, it'll be because we have Genesis, the greatest narratives ever told, on the mind. Because we never forget that America is more than just a tribe, a nation, or a commercial center. It's an attempt to write a crucial, virtuous chapter in the human story. But what's the nature of that story? How has it been told until now? How do we assess the good, the ugly, the bad, the angelic that have come from it? And how can this country's deeply unusual, in fact, historically unprecedented relationship with the Jewish people help explain it? So to unpack all of this, I brought on the man who literally wrote the book on all of this. He's the absolutely brilliant author of The Ark of a Covenant, The United States, Israel, and the Fate of the Jewish People. He's Walter Russell Mead. Walter, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. You know, and actually as I was listening, I, was, I found myself reflecting. You're right about Genesis. You are absolutely right. Now we're talking. I see. I like to start every podcast like that. <laughs> a major American political figure once wrote to a Jewish friend, I could find it in my heart to wish that you had been at the head of 100,000 Israelites making a conquest of that country and restoring your nation to the dominion of it, the land of Israel. The author of that letter was John Adams, America's second president. And he wrote it in 1819, over 40 years before Theodore Herzl, the father of Zionism, was even born. Where does this instinct in American political life come from? Yeah, it's, it's one of the most fascinating questions because it's, it's really as old as the, you know, as the American founding. And by founding, I don't even mean 1776. I'm talking more like 1620 and 1603, that, that the Puritans— who were so instrumental in the early history of the United States, were marked by a very special theological view about the relationship of the Jewish history, of Jewish history to the future. So many Christians for 1,500 years had basically understood Jewish history's, Jewish sacred history as ending with the crucifixion of Christ, the rejection of the gospel. It was sort of, okay, well, you know, the Jews played their part. Now the church is the new Israel. And individual Jews who want to join the church can be part of the story. But the Jewish, God is no longer interested in Jews as Jews. And that was kind of the, the default interpretation. But the Calvinists, or some of them anyway, and I think this has actually a lot to do with their view of covenant, something that is a, is, is a big theme in Genesis, had a different approach. And they said, look, okay, yes, it's true. Jesus was the Messiah. The Jewish people rejected him. But you know what? Look at the whole history of God's dealing with Israel. They're always rejecting. The majority is always rejecting God. The Bible is not the story of human virtue. It's 
It's of God's persistence of divine forgiveness, mercy, being willing to start again. And the covenants that God made with the nation of Israel remain in effect. And one of the key elements of that is the promise that at some time the Jews would return from this, the exile that followed the Roman wars against the Jews, would return from that exile and again have a Jewish state in Israel. And you'll find American preachers in the 17th century writing books, preaching sermons on this theme. Jonathan Edwards, the greatest American theologian of the pre-revolutionary era, made a point of, of expressing this belief. So it's in American culture and religion from the start that God isn't finished with the Jews, and part of this story involves, at the climax of history, the Jews returning to the Holy Land. So this is a different way of reading salvation history than Jews themselves would make, but notably, it's very different from what had come before, as you said, and it makes me think, so probably the most important Zionist essay by an Orthodox Jewish scholar in America is Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik's Kol Dodi Dofek, which is the Hebrew for Song of Songs, chapter 5, verse 2, a sound my beloved is knocking. And he published it in 1956, like just before the Suez crisis. And against most Orthodox theologians at the time, including, by the way, extremely prominent and distinguished members of his own family, Rabbi Soloveitchik believed that there was a strong, really inescapable religious case for Zionism, not just a political case or a cultural case as it was. And in fact, as the title of the essay suggests, he saw the establishment and the rise of Israel as an example of God knocking on the door, prompting a response on, on our part. And in the essay, he described six different knocks, as he called them. And one of them actually is about Christian biblical interpretation. So he had read John Henry Newman's An Essay in Aid of a Grammar of Ascent very carefully. And in fact, he cited it approvingly in many other cases. And there he had encountered the argument, uh, though he'd seen it elsewhere, of course, in Justin Martyr and beyond, that God's promises to Abraham and the prophets, as you were alluding to earlier, about his relationship with the Jewish people in the land of Israel should be read metaphorically or typologically, basically is not being about the literal Jewish people at all. And Rabbi Salajic believed that Zionism made that way of reading the Bible untenable. Now, the interesting thing is that Rabbi Soloveitchik, mostly because his focus wasn't on, you know, like Anglo-American religiosity as a whole, but on Jewish theology internally. So he doesn't distinguish between Catholics and Protestants or between German speakers and English speakers and so forth. But how do biblical reading practices themselves change in the wake of the Reformation? And how does this influence rethinking about the place of the Jew in the Holy Land and world history and society? Yeah, that's, that's a powerful set of questions. The, the biggest change, of course, that occurs is not even directly a result of the Reformation. It's more a cause of the Reformation. It's that once Gutenberg gets out there, the average person can actually own and read a Bible. And this is amazing. I mean, we're always talking about how the Internet is disintermediating and giving people access. Printing was a bigger deal than that. And the whole demand for the Bible in a language that ordinary people could understand is related to the fact that they, you know, they want to be able to read it in whatever language they speak. And as they do this, it really is a revelation, because, and a revolution for that matter, because 
The way Christians typically encountered the Bible before the Reformation was that in church on Sunday, the priest would read certain things and their prayers in the communion service. Almost all of what the, what you would hear in these prayers would be about the kind of final suffering of Jesus, about his crucifixion. And then on, uh, you know, during Holy Week, there are these performances of sacred dramas where the Jews, uh, you know, cr- are crying, crucify him, crucify him, his blood be on us and on our children. And that's the way people sort of saw the role of Jews in the Bible, in what they knew of the Bible. But you start reading the darn thing, and you realize that, first of all, for a Christian, something like three-quarters of your holy book is, in fact, the Jewish scriptures. And you read those, and you start finding these amazing heroes of faith, whether it's Daniel or David or Hannah or, you know, just this whole long list, Deborah. And one of the ways you can see this percolating into popular culture is you start getting Hebrew names for American, Anglo-American kids and names that had previously just not been around, like Caleb would have sounded like a crazy name in 15th century England. It's a very normal American boy's name today, Samuel. These names come in because people saw these ancient Hebrew people as someone to admire. Then, as you've mentioned before, the book of Deuteronomy was incredibly important. And in fact, the the Chronicles and the books of Kings are important because here are these Americans trying to build a country in a wilderness, fighting a war with England. Well, how does God want us to live? One of the irritating things psychologically about Christianity for even a lot of Christians is there's no Christian Sharia you know, no no sort of Christian Talmud. How's a father supposed to defy, divide the inheritance? There's nothing. You know, sh- what are the political rights of women? Nothing. What are the regulations governing slavery or is slavery even permissible? Nothing, all right? They're, they're, it's not full of all of these examples or guides of laws. So the Puritans are believing, well, God's word tells us everything we need to know, are start combing the Hebrew scriptures to find out, okay, what should the civil laws of the colony of New Haven be? Aha, thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. (laughs) They weren't always good choices. But this becomes a source of legislation, and it becomes politically a source of inspiration. To me, the, the, the great one is It's very hard to find any example in the ancient language of any people, of anybody questioning the legitimacy of monarchy. And the the whole debate over whether the Jews should have a king, the the Israelites should have a king over them, where Samuel is saying, no, God's first choice is that you not have a king. And a king is going to, I mean, when Samuel talks about what a king will do, he almost sounds like, you know, uh, I don't know, a libertarian talking about central government. It's going to tax you. It's going to abuse you. It's going to create a bureaucracy that will oppress you. You really don't want to go down that road. The original Mercatus Center. I love it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right, exactly. And uh, 
Samuel seems to have tried to to pick kings that wouldn't be that effective, which uh, it was also. But anyway, there's a sophisticated political understanding in the Hebrew Bible that is different from what we get in other texts. The sort of the ordinary people have a have a connection to the divine. Legitimacy is not imposed by a central political authority. Now, obviously the Bible, there, there are a lot of books in the Bible and there are a lot of different messages. And you can certainly read some of the Psalms as, you know, during the English Civil War, King Charles' side would, would quote the Psalms at the Puritans and the Puritans would quote, quote like, you know, chronicles against the king. So it just, it gets mixed up. But it provided the vocabulary and the ideas that the American founders were able to use to create a different kind of of political entity. I actually, this is such a perfect transition because I wanted to actually speak about uh, Erastianism, right? So the Swiss theologian Thomas Erastus and his followers worked out the theory that the civil magistrate is the only potential source of valid religious law. And so naturally, a civil government shouldn't mandate or regulate belief or adjudicate between different sects or even different religions because this wouldn't serve any useful civic purpose. And this line of thought undergirds everything that we take for granted in the classical European and then the American theory of religious toleration. And the remarkable thing is that all of this theological and political work from Erastus himself to giants of political thought like Thomas Hobbes, Hugo Grotius, John Selden, it's all rooted deeply and explicitly, and in some cases actually exclusively, in Jewish sources. Not just the Hebrew Bible, but actually rabbinic Talmudic sources from from the Talmud to Maimonides. And I thought about this a lot when reading uh, Ark of a Covenant because of your formulation in Ark of a Covenant of how the historically unusual institutions that made America especially congenial for and interested in the Jews developed without trying to change society in a way that would benefit the Jews. And that's one of the interesting things about America is it sort of became this way without trying to. And that's true in many cases, maybe even in all cases, like the rise of capitalistic economies, which maybe we could talk about later. But while it's definitely true and really important, it struck me that in the case of religious toleration and maybe some other cases, there's an extra layer. Like in the case of American religious toleration, which you point to as a really important factor in the book, it developed without contemporary Jews in mind and without the help or intellectual assistance of contemporary Jews. But it was deliberately patterned on the society of ancient Jews, the Hebrew Republic, And it depended existentially on the intellectual contributions of ancient Jews. So the the question that that kind of raised for me is a twofold, and we can take them in turn. First of all, how does the the rise of Christian Hebraism and its popularity, particularly in the English-speaking world, affect the story that you tell about America and the Jewish people? And two, could we see the American journey, basically uniquely in world history, as going from engaging and embracing dead Jews to being willing to engage and embrace live Jews? Okay, big questions. <laughs> right, figure start small. You know, I do think that the sources of, of American religious tolerance were not intellectual fashions of the day or something, but it came out of a practical problem, which is, Basically, nobody won the English Reformation, right? So you get this situation where 
you've got like dozens of competing religious sects in Anglo-America, each claiming to be the one true church. And none of them is big enough to do what happens everywhere else where, you know, either the Lutherans or the Catholics or somebody just established this themselves. We are the only one. There's no room for anybody. The Anglicans get to be the established church, but they, they, they can't squeeze out the others. They're, they're still there and they have a corporate presence. They have rights and more than toleration, in many cases they vote, etc. So you have to have somehow an idea of the English nation that composes these different elements. And you know, the, the, the idea of a denomination, which is a sectarian body within a wider religious community. And the denominations, yes, you know, like you're a fervent Baptist, you're a fervent Episcopalian, you're a fervent Lutheran, but also it's really clear that you all need to get along and cooperate on all kinds of civil matters. So you've got these distinct groups, none of whom, you know, again, we have established religions in early American history. We have the Congregationalists in New England. I mean, I think Connecticut doesn't disestablish the church until the 1830s. And actually, if you still want to see a place in America where where there's still an established religion, actually go to Harvard University, which is technically a religious corporation. And the sheriff of Middlesex County is an ex officio member of the Harvard Board of Overseers. (laughs) That's so hardcore. (laughs) Uh, So we we do have these, these established religions in American history. But when it came to the Constitution, the rest of the country was not going to let those New Englanders impose their church on the rest of the country. And the Anglicans and Baptists and so on elsewhere, you know, the Congregationalists weren't going to let them. So fine, you know, at the federal level, we will not have an established church because basically any, any other option would be civil war. The country wouldn't cohere. So tolerance and tolerance for sub-identities underneath the the idea of America as a tribe of tribes is kind of there implicit from the beginning. Some American religions, it fitted theologically with their understanding, like the Baptists, who in principle uphold the idea of religious freedom. For others, it's a regrettable, necessary concession to an imperfect state of affairs, but nevertheless very real. So less, less theoretical. In terms of moving from dead Jews to, to living Jews, there weren't very many Jews in early American history. I think there were about a thousand Jews at the time of the revolution. And interestingly, they didn't get along very well with each other. The Jewish show could be a, a thousand Jews. It's enough to make 2,000 synagogues, right? The- <laughs> right. I think there were like six actually in the country at the time. And, and they generally, each of them was suspicious of the others. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but again, and again, conditions were different in different places. Rhode Island had a tradition uh, of tolerance. Oddly, South Carolina uh, was really a haven for Jews at this period. In a sort of a, a, South Carolina is not, I'm I'm from South Carolina originally. It's not widely hailed as a beacon of enlightenment as a state. Uh, So it was very cool for me to see this. 
this example from South Carolina history. But I think partly because there were so few, and they were generally Sephardic Jews, often Jews when the Dutch uh, Empire in Brazil collapsed, the Portuguese reconquered. You had uh, Jews fleeing the Portuguese reconquest. You had some of those were the ones who landed in uh, New Amsterdam and started, I think, the first synagogue in what is now the, the U.S., but they were a small group of people, generally speaking, fairly upscale economically and pretty integrated socially. You know, they were respectable, well-known, well-liked people in the rather small urban upper classes of those days. Uh, then you start getting a big Jewish immigration comes in the 1840s. And a lot of it has to do with the collapse of the German Revolution of 1848 and the dislike of many Prussian Jews of getting drafted into German military service. And, and you do start getting more anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism in America tends to rise under two sets of conditions. One, large new Jewish immigration. And two, a sense in America that maybe America isn't working anymore, that the economy isn't working, that maybe the American dream was a lie all along, a mask for white supremacy or whatever. But when you get a lot of people in America doubting the American dream, anti-Semitism tends to pop up in just those corners of the American political world. So uh, you had that, but then by the 1870s or so, a lot of these German Jews are becoming pretty well integrated and accepted. And I would say that this is the time when, when you get a real, the beginnings of a Jewish American culture that is aware of itself as being different from other Jewish communities in the world, as well as being different from non-Jewish Americans. It's a very important time in American Jewish cultural history that I, I think we could all benefit from studying a little bit more. I think I'm wandering from your question no, this is exactly where I was hoping we go. I want to actually pick up some of those strands. One of them, actually, speaking of the the state of the American story and how that re relates to politics abroad, because there's a powerful point. Today, the, the attractions of nationalism are strongly associated with reactionary politics. But in the 19th century, it was basically the opposite, right? So how do we explain this development? And how does it help us understand nationalism today? Well, first of all, I would question your assumption, okay? Think about Ukraine, okay? That's a good point. They're nationalist, but pretty much everybody says this is progressive, this is good, this is what the world should be like. And for that matter, Palestinian nationalism is widely hailed in progressive circles. So Good it's point. certain nationalisms are seen as progressive. But this progressive quality, again, think about the 19th century and how Americans especially would have perceived Europe at that time. You look at kind of everything from the River Rhine East, Imperial Germany, Imperial Russia, Imperial Austria slash Austria-Hungary, as it becomes later, the Ottoman Empire. So sort of the eastern two-thirds of Europe plus what we now think of as the Middle East, all ruled by these multinational, multi-confessional empires. They're all sort of absolute monarchies, at least in theory. 
with very limited rights for anybody else. And in all of these countries, you get in these empires, you start getting these movements of democratic resistance. So the, you know, the Czechs don't want to be part of the German empire. They want to have free Czechia or Czechoslovakia, as it would become for a while. And the Poles want to get out, you know, return to the era of an independent Poland. So these movements are nationalist, and they believe, you know, all Czechs should take care of other Czechs, and we Czechs have a special destiny in the world. We have unique gifts to share with the world. But they were also democratic in the sense that, you know, if we could just vote, we'd all vote for what we want, which is Czech independence. So the cause of democracy and the cause of nationalism, particularly at this early stage, were very much connected. And it was only, you know, later when it turns out that, oh, wait a minute, everybody in Europe has a map in their head of how big their country would be. And Europe isn't big enough to contain all the maps that everybody's got. So when Hungarians talk about Hungary, they mean like Croatia and Transylvania and a couple of other chunks here and there. And anything less than that is not the crowns of Saints, the lands of St. Stephen. While Romanians think, no, 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 Transylvania is an integral part of Romania. And as one Romanian once remarked to me, the Magyars, he said, the Hungarians are really just interlopers. They only arrived in 900 A.D. So you have these sort of, you know, the nationalism quickly turns into a kind of war of peoples because everybody's got these different maps. Of course, the great powers love to, you know, play with these various nationalist movements, as we obviously still see today. And it's worth adding that these nationalist wars, often, you know, by people who are proclaiming democracy, turn out to be a lot bloodier than the kinds of wars over, you know, is is it going to be Frederick the Great or Maria Theresa who rules Silesia? Nobody really cares other than, you know, a few officials and all about that. And the Silesians don't care. They'll be paying taxes to whoever it is. They just hope the soldiers don't fight on their land, you know, go somewhere else and fight. So it's easy in that case to have laws of war, don't attack civilians, all of these things. But you get a war of peoples. You know, you want to drive the other people out of your valley. Or you start to assume that every member of the other population is your enemy. And so nationalism pretty quickly, in historical terms, goes from being this almost purely democratic, idealistic force to being associated with some of the most evil forms of warfare and genocide. Again, we can see this in Russia, in in the Ukraine war as, as we're speaking, that in Russia, people are talking about deliberately destroying the the infrastructure that allows people to live in places like Kiev, so they'll all have to flee, and then it will be ours. It's That's a war of peoples, not a war of cabinets. So nationalism, nationalism has these two faces, and it still has them today. So to go the opposite way from nationalism, some of the most interesting contemporary thinkers 
Balaji Srinivasan is one, uh, wrote a wonderful, really kind of book, extend, really extended essay called The Network State, where he's thinking about the future of nation building in a Web3 world, in a crypto world. And he specifically, as, a, as an influence, he name checks two sources of influence on his, uh, on his program, and one of them is Theodore Herzl. So should Herzl be more widely read by the next generation of innovative political thinkers or maybe techno-optimists? Is Herzl underrated now? Look, Herzl is a, is a figure, again, he's, he's a figure that is not well understood. He's, you know, I'd say he's revered more than he's read in Israel. And he's a difficult figure because Herzl, I mean, if there was ever a, an individual who projected the values of European enlightenment, it's Theodor Herzl, this dapper, cosmopolitan, well-dressed guy who's like from Austria, but like has lots of friends in Paris and, you know, goes to the opera with all the, you know, he's like hangs out with artists and politicians. My guy just wants to write plays and be happy. That's all, you know. <laughs> no, I know. And he's cursed with his only gift being to write newspaper columns. Right. A tragic gift, I can tell you. But what he says, what is the core of his message? It is that liberalism will kill the Jews. That, okay, if you Jews believe in this wonderful, friendly enlightenment of Europe, you know, it's wonderful. There's Zola, there are all the Dreyfusards who are fighting to reverse the conviction of Dreyfus and establish your rights. These are wonderful people. You cannot help liking them. But if we Jews think that they hold the key to the future in Europe, we are all going to be murdered. And I mean that murdered. That's Herzl's message. And yet then when you ask what kind of state does he want the Jewish state to be, it's a beautiful, liberal, enlightened state. Right, right. <laughs> okay, so Herzl and liberalism is as complicated a story as the story in a way of nationalism and liberalism. Right. So I think we do need to under, you know, we need to study this, not not in the sense, it's not going to give us answers, I think, but it's going to help us frame some of the questions that that are still very much rattling around about the nature of the Jewish state. When we think when I think about American Jews and Israeli Jews, I think the most important thing to remember is that by and large, American Jews are people for whom Herzl was wrong. And Israeli Jews are people for, for whom Herzl was right. You know, American Jews believe that liber no, liberalism will save the Jews. And in order to make that happen, we need to be the best liberals of all. And that, I think, is still the driving conviction of most American Jews. And it has led to some fantastic things. And so far, at least in the American experience, it's worked. But for Israeli Jews, these are people who who come out of societies where Herzl was 100% right. You know, don't believe all these liberal Russians talking to you about the new age after the fall of the Soviet Union. You know, it's going to get dark and ugly. Don't believe all these liberal Germans who talk to you about the wonderful life of the Jews in Germany. They're going to kill you if you don't get out. You know, that sort of rift in the Jewish world today very much shapes the interaction of Israeli and American Jews. I want to shift eastward for a second. Shouldn't the Jewish people and the Iranian people kind of be natural allies, right? So Cyrus the Great, 
right? Founder of the Ecumenid dynasty has long been this kind of crucial national symbol in Iranian political culture. And even though that waned after the revolution, it's kind of seen a resurgence in the, even in the Islamic Republic. Now, if you look outside Iran, the Hebrew Bible, first of all, is by far the most <laughs> Persian-friendly source in the ancient world. Cyrus, right? Cyrus is the only Gentile, in fact, one of the very few individuals referred to as God's anointed, which is the literal meaning of the Hebrew word for Messiah. And then beyond that, the most foundational intellectual achievement in Jewish history, the Talmud, was created in Iran and was indelibly shaped by, you know, Sasanian Iranian culture. So wouldn't you think there's this kind of natural attraction between the Jewish people and Iranian people such that while today Iran poses a major threat to Israel that needs to be seriously dealt with, we should, at least over the long term, maybe perhaps be more bullish on relations between Iran and Israel, or or at least see the current enmity as like more contingent. I think it's a, it's a, it's a big problem because, as you probably know, ethnic Persians are not really a very substantial majority of the people in geographical right. Iran, and a lot of the most valuable stuff in Iran is under people who are not physically inhabited by people who are not Persian. So the oil is mostly in the Arab speaking part of Iran and. The Azeris and the Kurds also have a lot of resources. So if you're a Persian nationalist, you want this whole conglomeration to stay together, all right? Well, that might have been easy back in the days of the imperial zone pre-nationalism, right? But now there's Kurdish nationalism, there's Azeri nationalism, Arab nationalism, Baloki nationalism even. And so what's going to hold this together? Under the Shah, there was this attempt to kind of fashion a kind of Iranian, not Persian, but Iranian nationalism, you know, and Cyrus is an Iranian leader, not merely a, you know, right. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That, all, that always rang kind of hollow. You know, it was artificial and visibly so. Uh, and then with, you know, the Iranian revolution, in a way, sort of as Erdogan has tried to bring Islam into Turkey and the BJP is bringing Hinduism as a core constitutive idea for India, the Islamic revolution puts Shia Islam as the unifying ideology that we're all about. But for that, then, you know, then you've got like a conflict with Sunni Islam and, you know, you need to project power into the Middle East. And, you know, how do you gain legitimacy for Persians who are not always beloved by Arabs and for Shiism, which many Sunnis consider to be a terrible heresy? Well, one one great way is to be more anti-Zionist than thou and more anti-American than thou. So we should see, I think, the anti-Zionism of the Khomeini, the Khomeini regime, as not some casual thing is pretty central both to its domestic and to its international strategies. Now, if you could imagine an end to that regime, all right, you still have to think, what's the centripetal force that would hold this multifarious collection of peoples in a single state, all right? And if it falls apart, as it might very likely do, as so many other states, first, it's unlikely to do so in a peaceful way, uh, given everything that goes on. It's not going to be peaceful or easy. What ideologies come out of that and how do they affect the relationship? For example, the Israeli-Azeri relationship is very strong 
and uh, not in ways that would endear Israel to Persian nationalists, even in a post-Ayatollah era. So, lots of question marks over that one. I don't think we can make too many assumptions. Speaking of Cyrus, how does Cyrus, as a figure, and particularly his reception, his biblical reception, how does that help us understand or, or maybe sometimes misunderstand the history of American foreign policy towards the nascent state of Israel during the Truman presidency and beyond? Well, certainly Harry Truman uh, was very fun. Harry Truman, at one point, somebody said, you played a role like Cyrus. He said, like Cyrus, I am Cyrus. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I always hear that line in like Jack Nicholson's voice at the end of A Few Good Men, you know? <laughs> But as far as I can tell, you know, if anybody has the claim to being Cyrus in that, Stalin has a better claim. Right. Because really the only way the Israelis were able to win that war of, their war of independence was that Stalin began to secretly sell them arms, basically allowed the Czechs to sell, ironically, surplus arms originally built for the Wehrmacht to the uh, Jews of Palestine. And that tipped the balance at a time when the U.S. had imposed an arms embargo on the whole Middle East, which favored the Arabs who were being armed by the British. And Truman never lifted that embargo. Uh, and in fact, the Soviets continued to supply the Israelis with weapons even after a U.N. embargo was put in place. So again, there's a very realpolitik thing there. And Stalin was doing a lot of this he hoped to spite Truman. I think in the end, it kind of, it got, Stalin oddly helped get Truman out of a very tight political corner and ultimately helped him more than he intended. You know, we hear from so many people in America, particularly younger, but not only younger people, who think the U.S. and Israel have always been allied, that without American protection and help, Israel could never have succeeded, right? And so there, none of this is true. None of this is true. And that that protection has been like engineered by powerful Jews, you know, from, from the get-go, right? You know, and that's, you know, that's the logic behind things like BDS and so on, that if we can just beat back the Jewish influence in America, then American support for Israel will weaken and deprived of that support, Israel will be helpless, <laughs> you know? And this tends to forget that when Israel was weak and close to helpless in the 40s and 50s, the United States was much more interested in allying with Nasser than with Israel. And, Israel, you know, Israeli prime ministers were not guests at the White House. There was no, the first American president to talk about a special relationship with Israel was Kennedy, JFK. But he wasn't actually, he was doing this because he hoped that the Israelis believed that America would provide conventional arms to Israel. Then Israel would give up its development of nuclear weapons, which Kennedy saw as a terrible threat to stability and peace. So uh, he was trying to, he was instrumentally trying to use the, the rhetoric of deep U.S.-Israeli friendship as a way to steer Israel toward the policy choices that he wanted. It's really not until the Nixon administration that you can speak of an alignment, and an alliance really comes somewhat later than that. So Israel, as I say in the book, Israel did not become strong because it had an American alliance. It gained an American alliance because it had grown strong. But, but Americans feel the need, 
both pro-Zionist and anti-Zionist, feel the need to mythologize the U.S.-Israel relationship and to see it as this eternal pact, either for the anti-Zionists, the conniving, vicious Jews are forcing us down the garden path, or for pro-Zionist Americans, because America and Israel naturally love each other because we're both good people and good country and so on. Both of these are illusional, but they both tell us a lot about the American mind. In the years since Putin's Russia has taken a great interest in Middle Eastern power politics, does the Soviet period, especially Stalin's regime, as you were describing, does that hold any lessons for foreign policy thinkers today in terms of explaining behavior towards or maybe even by Israel? Well, I am, I've obviously been struck. Um, Putin had been the most pro-Israel leader in Russia since Stalin's brief so about 1948 to 51 or so when, uh, was pro-Israel. Then he, then he begins to flip. And all the people who had helped Israel, he ended up in the gulag. Right, right. Uh, but that was normal for Stalin, you know? Use them, discard them. Putin always said that Stalin didn't make many mistakes, but one of his mistakes was ending the relationship with Israel. Hmm. And Putin deliberately went and courted Israel in all kinds of ways. He took, a, he took a walk through the old city with Israeli politicians, remarking on the Jewish character of East Jerusalem, which if you follow the rhetoric of the conflict, that's like you know, a red flag of uber-Zionism there. Uh, and, you know, Gazprom was looking at all kinds of deals with Israeli gas resources and things like this. And we have to remember that there's been a huge wave of Russian emigres into Israel. There are deep business ties, personal ties, cultural ties. And of course, not even all of those emigres are even Jewish, halakhically Jewish. It's a very, so the Russian vote in Israel is a big deal. And I imagine that, you know, I don't have any personal knowledge of this, but there are probably some Israeli tech companies who have relationships both in the Russian world and in the non-Russian world, et cetera, some banking things and so on. Many of them may be mediated through Cyprus, whatever. There, there's a lot of reasons why Putin would want to keep this thing flourishing. And on the Israeli side, you know, so as the Americans have started to try to bail out of the Middle East, among other things, it's put the Russian military in de facto control of big chunks of Syria. And so Israel has had to work out things like if it wants to stop Iran from shipping weapons to Hezbollah in Syria, it has to kind of work out airstrikes with the Russians. And the last thing it wants to do is to kill a bunch of Russians on a strike that was intended for Iranians. And I think, too, um, as Russia has renewed its ties with the Arab world and OPEC too and so on, it's becoming, it's become a player again in the Middle East. And Israel can't be ignorant of that, especially when Putin seems to be disposed, at least potentially, to be pro-Israel rather than anti-Israel. But I think what we're seeing with the Ukraine war is something a little bit like the force that pushed Israel westward in the 50s. That is when the, the Korean War comes and Ben-Gurion 
and the Israeli political establishment really understand they need to side with the U.S. and the West on this. And that's the sort of prime reason for the break with Stalin. And you can see it now with Iran aiding Ukraine, aiding Russia, right? Uh, It's getting harder and harder for that Israeli-Russian relationship to work. Now, we're recording this before the Israeli election. This is not a time when Israeli politicians want to be alienating the Russia lobby, so to speak, in Israeli politics by making nasty cracks or whatever. But it's certainly a time when sober observers of the Middle East situation are seeing strains in any possible Moscow-Jerusalem relationship. It's uh, it's a tricky time. So what does the more recent rise of anti-Semitism around and in America tell us about the contemporary state of the American story? It's not good news. It's not good news. I mean, it's no secret, I'm sure, to you and to a lot of our listeners here that you know, the last few years have not been the happiest years in the history of the American Republic. Now, I myself will say we're nowhere near what I remember as a kid from the 60s and 70s. We are, you know, we're a long way short of that. But nevertheless, it's, it's, uh, it's been a sobering experience for a lot of us. And what you're seeing is on the left and on the right, you're seeing the rise of, of groups of people who think that the American dream was an illusion or even a deliberately, you know, a lie. So you hear on the, on the left, a lot of identity politics clustering around the idea that even Jewish integration is a form of white supremacy, that, that the American dream is code for, you know, anti-black white supremacy, all of the stuff about democracy, equality of opportunity, this is just rhetoric as part of an ongoing project of subjugation. And people from in that world, you hear a lot of people, first of all, who identify with the Palestinian struggle rather than with the Zionists and see kind of America as globally holding down peoples of color, the oppressed people, and that that's related to the white supremacist nature of American society itself. And so anti-Semitism is flourishing happily. That's very congenial soil. But then on the other side, you've got another kind of identity politics developed of people who are saying, you know, this kind of actually America, really only white Christians are good, are good Americans. And there's this great replacement. Uh, You know, they're going to try to replace the white Christian Americans with a bunch of brown and black people who are more easily ruled and can be part of this project of centralist oppression. And American Jews, predominantly liberal, are seen as siding with the great, you know, replacement and are with the forces that are trying to destroy what's left of the true American nation in order to create this horrible tyranny that lies ahead. So you can hear, uh, you'll, you'll hear comments even from very well-known figures in that universe that immediately link to anti-Semitic tropes of hidden Jewish power and influence in exactly the same way you hear from the left. 
So people who hate each other and disagree about just about everything, except in a mutual disdain and distrust of the American political experiment and American experience, also are united in anti-Semitism. I was so struck in your book and just it it fits so well with what you're saying now. I was so struck by this observation you make, which is that the more you you try to racialize the American politics and the American story, the the more that's going to result in anti-Semitism. And I, it would seem to me then that the American story, I would say properly understood, but even if you don't want to say properly understood, sort of the American story most aspirationally understood, and I suppose the critique would be overly optimistically understood, but I'm okay with that. The American story aspirationally and optimistically understood is a story that's that's just congenial to the project of of the Jewish state rather than one manipulating the other. I was so struck by that. So can I ask you a question? You you've written so many fabulous books, Special Providence, Ark of a Covenant, and so many more. What's now that you've this project, as you write about in in the book itself, was many, many years in the making. So now that it's out, what's the next big project that you're tackling? Oh, I actually want to write about this political this moment of political confusion and in some cases even despair where we are, a time when our institutions don't seem to be working, a time when a lot of our ideals don't seem to be working or don't seem to be relevant. I actually continue to believe that the the ideas and the experiences of American history provide the best basis for kind of leaping forward into a new kind of American society that that can meet more of the of the needs and the aspirations of its people and provide an example globally of a way an information society can organize itself and achieve the results. I think the unlimited possibilities of the new kinds of affluence and and freedom that an information society holds out as a possibility. Uh, but that's, you know, that's not an easy thing to do. So I'm trying to wrap my head around that and come up with what I hope will be an optimistic, forward-looking book that, who knows, might even have a little political impact. I am so excited for that. I can't wait to, uh, I can't wait to pre-order it. Uh, Walter, thank you so much for being here. This is such a pleasure. Thank you. Why does American policy in the Middle East look the way it does? Has it always been this way? How is it intertwined with religious life and literacy in America? And how does the Jewish story from the Bible to the present help us understand something important about the American story? I think the best answer to all of these questions is to double down on that powerful idea that Walter so beautifully illustrates. American history and American purpose properly understood should make us feel invested in the future of the Jewish people. Now, that doesn't commend any particular policy at a granular level, of course, and I don't pretend to any expertise in Middle Eastern politics, but I do think that a Middle East that takes seriously the legacy of Abraham and Genesis in a way that we're actually seeing signs of now is a healthy, even globally inspiring one. And that's what we should want to see as humans, as people of faith, and even, crucially, as Americans. Anyway, thank you so much for joining us today. This was an absolute blast. And while you're here, go ahead, be awesome, and head into Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, Google Play, or anywhere else you get podcasts and give us a rating. Five stars only.
because it really helps people find the show. Anyway, this is Ari Lamb making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lamb. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Galad Brownstein. This is a Soul Shop podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lamb and sign up for our email list at soulshopstudios.com slash goodfaitheffort. For more information about Soul Shop, follow Soul Shop on Twitter at Soul Shop Studios and on Instagram at soulshop underscore studios. And check out soulshopstudios.com. 